Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two, whilst occasionally sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing with this week's Market Report. Market Report for week commencing 3rd of July 2023. 3rd of July 1978, a 16-year-old boy came to work on his moped, got there 30 minutes early, and have the prestigious job of being a documentation clerk. And he was paid £1,250 a year for the pleasure. I can still remember that first day going to work in the grain trade. And who'd have thought, hey, 45 years later, that one, I'd still be in the industry and I wasn't captaining England at football. And yeah, all of the other things that have occurred. And certainly some of the people I've worked with have expressed great shock and surprise at the, at the fact I ended up running my own business. So anyone who's 16-year-old now can't start work pretty well. They have to wait till they're 18. But I just would say, you know, dream big and you never know. I've certainly uh, surprised myself, if not everybody else. Right, with that happy little remembrance, and just for Norwich City fans, that was the year that Ipswich won the FA Cup. <laughs> Which doesn't hurt me either way, as you know. Anyway, let's say the first thing. The rain that came this week to East Anglia was absolutely perfect. It was really good rain. Uh, there's good rain and there's bad rain, as everybody knows, in the farming industry. And yesterday's morning rain wasn't good for the Norfolk show, but it steadily soaked into the ground and it, it has given an extra lump of tonnage to this coming harvest. So that was a bearish moment in terms of price, in my opinion, because the yield and the quality of some of the crops are going to be helped or saved with that. So it was a good moment. In the end, lots more tonnage in your bins, farmer boys, means more money. The fact the price goes down a few quid actually is compensated for. The only thing that can ruin the party this year, in my opinion now, is the weather pattern changing from the dry patch we've had into an ongoing wet forecast. So the only thing that can ruin it is lots of rain from sort of mid-July onwards. So here's hoping that that doesn't happen. And in those 45 years, it's happened a few times. That truly is a miserable experience for everybody. Nobody enjoys a wet harvest. So let's just talk about it so we perhaps scare it away so it's just nice and dry again. Right, that done. Where do we start? Old crop feed wheat is worth £170 a tonne if you've got any left. If you're not able to carry it, you aren't going to get any more money than that. It is over all by the shouting. There is a surplus of it. There is still some tonnage to be traded, and I think it will ease back as time gets towards the end of the month, certainly with harvest now being brought forward by this recent warm, dry spell. This is the only old crop price I've got for you. Everything else has had it. So moving on to new crop, I would say that the... New crop feed barley's suddenly upon us, and the price has kind of dropped to tenner in about five seconds. Feed barley harvest movement into store, £155 a tonne delivered. Now, one thing you learn over the years is you, you make all sorts of preaching statements about what you should and shouldn't do, and then you forget them yourself. So a little, a little message to everybody who sits in their ivory tower and doesn't go out and has lots of opinions about when harvest is going to start. I've been saying that I expect harvest to start into Aylesham round about the 15th of July. 
And I think that strictly should be true for this particular corner. However, by resting on my laurels and sitting back here with my feet up, I haven't actually gone out there and looked. And there are certain regions of East Anglia that are well ahead of that. There will be barley. As I understand it, there are some bits of barley that have been cut already. I don't know whether that's true in the sort of Sudbury area. But I'm expecting that there will be new crop samples in our face next week. Not necessarily from the Altium area, but it's earlier than we thought because it is absolutely raced on. And that's the thing that I learned at the Norfolk show. People were telling me, you know, you're out of touch, Andrew. You were saying it isn't going to come until the middle of July. We're fine. And it's going to be held up. Well, this last couple of weeks, the grain has raced forward to fitness and it is staring us in the face. And that's creating a few problems for people who still got a lot of barley stuffed in store from the maltsters who bought too much and they're kind of like leaning heavily on their store partners to carry you know it's not just one of them there's all in the same mode if you like but yeah we're a little bit nervous about some of that and i'm sure i'm not the only one so moving on to malting barley i mean where do you put the price the, the price has dropped back this week because of the rain that's come through us and through to scandinavia drought easing yield developing yeah it's a bigger crop there's 10 euros gone off the fob price at least so the market's a little bit more relaxed about it but as we all know there's a very long way to go between now and cutting a very good sample of malting barley and that rain we talked about earlier hopefully we've scared that away but that's the thing that could just make the market turn on a sixpence and go through the roof but at the moment the prospects i think for a good yield and good reasonable quality and therefore a plentiful supply certainly for the start of harvest So values are somewhere in the region of, yeah, 220-odd for harvest movement springs and 215 to 220 for winters, something like that. If you've got something specific you want to talk about or get something sold, then phone us up and we'll do something for you. But it's a buoyant market, well over £200 a tonne. Oilseed rape, harvest movement, 340 yeah you know let's see what you got some crops up here look really good they've potted up they're really tall i think they're gonna be a good crop some people have pulled all their rape up and they don't like even talking about it there's a big dividing line between decimated crops and ones that manage to survive it so let's see how little or big the yield is million wheat premiums are strong I don't see them changing again. The weather could utterly send that one through the roof. You may as well wait and see. Getting milling with high protein is a harder job than it used to be, more expensive, and not as many people are prepared to take that risk. So I, we shall see. I think one of the things that, that certainly topics of conversations at the Norfolk show with farmers was about this autumn and what you're going to plant. And I think there's a lot to be said for you know where the price is when you actually make the decision to plant versus the money for growing the odd corn flour in, in your field and then topping it once. You know, there is a fear that the government have got no kind of idea about strategy. And so consequently, if the price is really rubbish in the autumn, if we do get a bumper harvest and the price gets hammered, it's going to affect next year's prices. And as you sit there buying seed, looking at a, a cost that will be a loss, it will affect some people's decision as to whether they plant barley or wheat in certain fields which could reduce supply a bit. I think the next two months are quite critical for that because it really could be, if all the stars align, a big harvest across the northern hemisphere, all of a sudden there's a problem with price. Now, I can't see where that gets cured at the moment. I am quite bearish to it. Longer term, I think clearly the world isn't going to produce as many tonnes and the weather is beginning to do some pretty strange things. And one of these days it's going to do one of its catastrophes, which is going to really push the price up again. Weather, not politics, not war weather and it hasn't done that for a while and i you know every year it doesn't happen brings the year it's likely to closer 
So that's always haunting me in the back of my mind. But in the immediate short term, staring in the face of a crop that I think has just grown by, I don't know, a quarter of a million, half a million tonnes by having a decent rain in an area that really needed it at that moment, I think we're in a place where the pressure is going to start telling. And certainly if people haven't cleared up their old crop. Okay, that's enough about the market. I really hope that we get our stores cleared. I really hope that the weather is really kind for the start of harvest at the very least. It looks promising, but, you know, that changes. I think the industry, having talked to lots of farmers over the last two days at the Norfolk Show, is in a reasonably good state. People are pretty optimistic. Some very big, shiny machines getting bought, allegedly. And the cost of a combine, how on earth is that? Good grief, man. Anyway, 800000 to a million quid for a combine harvester. What's that all about? They're nice and black, or, you know, be really trendy, or have lines or pictures on them, but, whew. Anyway, enough of that. One thing to report, we had the podcast walk last week. There were four of us turned up, and it was great. We had Alan Hendry, who's he's done a hat-trick of walks. But we had a new farmer, Toby, from North Suffolk. And we had uh, Neil, one of our guys locally. And it was great. We really did have a good walk. Observation number one, footpaths are not cut back in any way, shape or form. It's not the farmer's job, probably. It's the parish councils and nobody's bothered. That particular path is quite well trodden. But, you know, there's plenty of nettles to sting those of us in shorts. Another observation is lots of pubs don't open on Monday. So we clambered around at the Trunch Crown to find it was closed on a Monday. So Paul research from the planning department but bluntly the doing grain podcast walk isn't that well researched it's like i'm going to go there on that day and i turn up if there's a pub open halfway around then fine if it isn't carry on walking yeah it was great and i haven't even thought about this month so i need to do something shortly in order to get make sure it happens during the month of july and obviously harvest is going to be happening so i suspect i haven't got a place yet but the doing grain july podcast walk will be very close to aylsham so we can get back to work and hopefully anyone who walks on it isn't going to be held up from harvesting anyway with that have a great week this week's market chat is fascinating it's a subject which i didn't think i'd have much to say about but it gripped me and i got right into it with him so chap called giles bryan who's an ai specialist he's got a company that he's he's now sold but he's the best bit about giles as far as i could see was the story which comes out early on about where he chose to live and bearing when he had the whole of the world to choose from so uh, all of you out there best kept secret has been blown with that have a great week thank you for listening please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich. We are a creative agency specializing in graphic design, websites, digital marketing, and SEO services tailored towards local and small businesses, a design agency you can trust. Get in touch to inquire with our friendly team today on 01603 728 978 or head over to our socials at East Coast Design Studio on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Okay, today we've got something slightly different. We've got a gentleman called Giles Bryan, who is an entrepreneur and an expert in conversational AI. A great friend of Joe's from many moons ago sailing, and I've got Joe with me as well. And this one could fry our brains by the end of it. So we're going to start with a question from Joe. And good morning, Giles. Andrew, Joe, pleased to be here. Hello, hello. So first thing that I obviously know, Giles, but just for everyone listening. So how did you end up in Norfolk and where have you just come from? 
My parents were teachers in Leicestershire, where I grew up on a farm in Leicestershire, and they travelled down the A47, as so many did, ended up sailing on the broads, and so they brought me with them. So I've been sailing here and the broads since the mid-70s. Where have I been recently? Most recently, based out of Washington, D.C., so on the east coast of the U.S., where we founded a software company over there. So I was over there for five years, and have now returned to the homeland, to Norfolk. So we had a little chat about this before the mics went on, which made my eyes light up. So you had sold your business, we'll get into this in a minute, but the most important point for the Norfolk people and their fans, you had a spreadsheet of you could live anywhere in the world. We did. So we put a spreadsheet together. I've got my wife Natalie and our four boys, and we were looking at various places to live. Could have been you know, New Zealand or Australia or the west coast of the US or Europe, um, various places. And we put a spreadsheet together, you know, weather, climate, education, friends, family, speaking the language. And I have to tell that the happy people of Norfolk that North Norfolk was a hands-down winner. And having now been here just heading on two years, we are so thrilled to be here. It's a wonderful place to be and to be with our children. So there you go. Norfolk. So everybody heard that, didn't they? Unfortunately, we're now all booked out. <laughs> yeah, we're closed to new business, so you're the last one allowed in, unless you. you have a passport. Oh, no, obviously, we know that. It's the best-kept secret, isn't it? And from a weather perspective, the rest of the country kind of suffers rain much more often than we do, which, all right, we might get dragged out one day, but it's actually quite nice. Yeah, we looked at Edinburgh, Devon, you know, it's all too wet and muggy over there, so yeah, yeah, yeah. easy good, winner. Good man. So let's get on to the nitty-gritty of the business that you used to do. You know, Try and explain it to simpletons like us. So the basic principle is is that governments and corporations want to engage and communicate with their people, but they want to do that in a way that is straightforward and automated. So what our company does is it consumes data from those organisations, from governments or corporations. With that data, it then communicates out to people that have a need, and I'll come into some details about that, and then basically takes actions on their behalf. So it's the automation of essentially the interactions between corporations and governments and their people. So let's take an example. We're currently doing some work with the state of Arizona and a number of U.S. states where they're trying to get their citizens signed up and managed onto the Medicaid program, which is their equivalent of the NHS, if you will. And we reach out to the citizens via text message. We say, do you want to re-enroll for Medicaid? They say yes, we re-enroll them and actually manage them all through that program. But the whole thing is seamless, it's automated, so there's no human engagement. And previously it would have involved letters and phone calls and emails and a whole load of waste. So you send a text... They respond by text? Yes, yeah, and then it's all in natural language. That's where the AI bit comes in. So it's just as if it was a human person reaching so out. So someone can't spell, and they text back with their terrible spelling, and your machine can go, right, OK. Can work it out. And so, for example, people, even in the UK, we work with organisations like OpenReach, Sky, British Gas, Virgin Media. So if anyone's had their broadband installed or managed, it'll seem like you're communicating through that process with a human, but actually it's our company in the background that's doing all those communications. And about 5% of cases, you end up engaging a human for some reason, which should always be possible. But most of that whole process will be automated. What's your firm called? It was called Contact Engine. Does that mean that you now have retired? or No, I'm working for the company that acquired us. So, okay. Yeah. And does that last for many years? or is Yeah, that... yeah that's uh, ongoing. So very pleased to be working with them. Yeah, cool. I'm sure you are. And that's one of the things, I mean, as someone who owns a business, if you suddenly decide to sell your business, it's one thing that they might come in and ruin it. But the other thing is, what the hell do you do with your time? You just sit there and, you know... Can't play golf every day, can you? I, with four small boys, I'd never be short of time. No, so, that's clearly no. for your own brain. I think that's yeah. you know, and I'm talking from my own experience on it. The conclusion I've come to is, you know, I really like doing what I do, so I'm interested in it. And you must be in the same place. The world of AI is absolutely fascinating at this moment. Yes, it's a revolutionary moment. Actually, we're seeing just now. Does it scare you? Absolutely not. 
See, this is the recent thing, isn't it? It is. Well, the typical approach to technology is to be scared about it. You know, if you think about the classic one, of course, is the Luddites. You'll be familiar with, I guess, that would have been 18th century. Yeah, yeah, so they the didn't like machines, machines yeah, and that sort of stuff. We, we, and, we, we, but we, even we, take your, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners own a tractor. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's quite a popular device, or a combine harvester. Indeed. Um, those are pieces of technology, yeah. and no one will be scared of those. You'd be like, well, how are we managed without those? And so every new advance we see in technology is frightening, it's scary. But imagine, you know, everyone talks about the jobs going away, about things being automated. But imagine you end up thinking about a post-need world where actually things are well managed, where harvests and the movement of grain and the movement of materials and cereals and everything's actually well managed because there is actually enough material in the world to feed the population of the world. It's just poorly managed. No offence meant, but it is. No, no, know, obviously in the rest right? of the world, you're right. In Norfolk. It's, it's perfect in Norfolk. but It is. You know, so if right. you imagine the aim of technology is to automate and by automating to release people from the drudgery of, let's say, go back a few weeding we don't have to weed anymore we couldn't use other ways of doing it so the aim of technology is that automation Mm. it's about saying we actually want to give people more time and run things more efficiently with lower energy usage that's what technology is about what do you do with the people though well the assumption is is that people you know are defined and have to work that is a sort of major assumption i'm not sure i buy into that assumption so take for example do we enjoy our weekends now we enjoy our weekends we enjoy our holidays if you go back a few hundred years that would be a novelty you had a holy day a holiday there was just maybe one or two a year so what you actually see is people are very, very good at doing useful things with the additional time they have available. But if you have a machine that takes up the place of 15,000 people, the income for that comes to one person or a group of five people as opposed to 15,000 people. It's all very well having time off, but if you have no income, nothing, it's a different situation, isn't it? It's not, oh, good, well, I've got another day off, let's go do something interesting because they can't afford to do anything. Well, that's always the fear about technology, that technology will result in people not having jobs. Mm. And yet if you look at even at the UK now or other countries, the net result of every improvement and change in technology there's two key metrics the first is infant mortality rate and the second is life expectancy Mm. because you would assume that if things are going badly those will go in the negative direction but in both cases you look across not just the uk but every country in the world you're seeing infant mortality fall life expectancy increase in other words the basic standard of living improves as there is more technology and that's been very dramatic since 1780 especially if you look at you know sub-saharan africa you look at india the philippines Mm. you can see how this really is having that global impact so should we be scared of technology we can be nervous about what it will do and what better happen but there's so much history and data that tells us that technology is a net benefit yeah absolutely but unfortunately humans still get involved don't they governments are skewed you get dictators you get the wrong people in power who gain control of the technology who go right okay let's just tweak this a bit there are humans unfortunately in the mix well i'm not sure i call it unfortunately what does happen now in our global news coverage is that we get to see everything from across the world as if it's all just next door Mm. so you know again if you look back a few hundred years your sphere of news was much smaller Whereas now we know about everything that's happened everywhere. And certainly the incidents that are, you know, all the terrible things that do happen, they are very well reported. But of course, vast swathes of the world, that's not happening in, and things are actually improving. And it's very common to sort of say the overall balance of the metrics is down, it's negative, the world's going to, you know, have a handcart. But actually, if you look at the core metrics, as I said, life expectancy, informal mortality, yeah, it, they're going up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a good conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you mentioned about harvest being more efficient, and, you know, if we actually got our act together as a world to organise it where food is distributed to everybody. Unfortunately, that isn't ever going to be the case. I mean, like, for example, the recent grain being delivered to Ethiopia was stopped because it was clearly, you know, there's lots of 
TV ads and lots of people giving money to give grain to feed those hungry people. And it transpires it's all been nicked by the soldiers, which is a traditional African thing. You know, it doesn't go to the people who actually need it because a dictator comes in and gets in the way. So the utopian dream that we're all going to be able to supply everybody with food and no one's going to be hungry just isn't true. Climate is changing as well, so there's going to be more and more desertification and there's going to be more people without food. But if this country had a small surplus, there's enough people who manage or govern this country who'd say, no, we need to keep our surplus, we're not going to let it go. What you say is correct, but if you have the right time frame, think about civilization as being a work in progress. You know, what we saw happening in Ethiopia recently, you know, again, if you start to think back to the sort of feudal times of the UK, which aren't that long ago, we're talking six, seven hundred years. Yeah, no, we're still feudal with you know. people from Essex. <laughs> That's fine. Yorkshire you people. Yeah, they're, they're. We're the Iceni tribe. Yeah, we've a few troubles, but um, carry on. <laughs> but essentially, you see that civilization in any particular part of the world is just different countries are at different stages, you might say. Mm. And so uh, it's just about having the right perspective. So, do we think, you know, if we move forward a couple of hundred years, do we think we'll still have the same challenges in all the parts of the world that we see now? Presumably not. No, absolutely not. I mean, but it does come into that fear, you know, the Will Smith movie, iRobot. You know, the dynamic of the sum is given logic. If you said to artificial intelligence, right, sort out the planet's problems with pollution and all of the things that are going on, there is one answer. Get rid of humans. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, there's the standard sphere that, that's, That's that all of a sudden we'll have the moment when computers become sentient uh, and they will suddenly take over and realise that humans are just a... How many times have you had this question in your life? You must have had this conversation 150,000 times. Uh, No, it's a reasonable fear. It's like the sort of child's nightmare. But when you talk about artificial intelligence, it's important to understand what we really mean about it. So artificial intelligence, as far as sentience, we're as far away from that as we ever have been. Okay. In other words, being that can simply exist and design its own, you know, characteristics and behaviour and that sort of stuff, that's not something humans are yet capable of creating. Having said that, what we experience as AI and how we experience it is very close to that. So if you take the Turing test, and you may have heard of the Turing test before, which is basically if I have a conversation with a computer and I can't determine whether it is a computer or a human, it's then passed what you call the Turing intelligence test. Mm-hmm. And certainly the new range of the generative AIs, which I'll mention in a minute, the generative AIs, you would not know if it was human or computer. Indeed, in many ways, it's the output from these generative AIs is superior to what humans would typically produce. Okay, so explain that. So generative AI, the most well-known one recently is managed by a company called OpenAI, which is based on the West Coast. It was originally a not-for-profit, but has now had a massive injection of funding from Microsoft. And generative AI is actually the ability to generate context, pictures, images by giving instructions. So you might say, for example, I did this just recently, write me a letter explaining to someone the benefits of working for an organisation and it will simply write you that letter or produce that. You might say, do me a picture in the style of Matisse, and it will generate a picture in the style of Matisse. You might say, write me a training manual about how to, I don't know, harvest grain, and it will write you a training manual on how to harvest grain. In other words, it generates actual text, logic, pictures, images, music. And that's why there's been this sudden flurry in concerns about AI. And yeah, this is what they're talking about. It's the generative AI that's coming out, which is extremely powerful and very successful. Okay, so what happens next then? You've got to educate us Luddites. What happens next? Well, the best way of thinking about how this works is AI works on the basis of data. So you have what they call large language models and massive amounts of data that come through. Well, the way AI works, it examines all that data and it decides how to operate, but also has something called machine learning. So the more data it gets, it puts that back into the learning model and essentially continues to learn on the basis of new data. So it's constantly improving, hence the machine learning. 
So how you might experience AI most in your business, the world of agriculture, as you think about how do we, you know, I'm sure you have lots of ways of measuring the grain and whether it's ready for harvesting, those sorts of things. And to what extent can that be automated by the use of data? I don't know if you guys have seen a film called Slightly Bleak called Interstellar. Obviously, it's, uh, it's based on a farm, Midwest somewhere. Essentially, the whole process of farming becomes automated through the use of data. Now, is that artificial intelligence or is it just really, really smart machines? I would say it was the latter, but nonetheless, it's part of what we now call as artificial intelligence. So you have drones that do the monitoring of the material, etc. I mean, that's essentially, we are already at the base level of that, or we have been doing that for many, many years, but we are becoming more and more connected to that sort of concept where people are testing things and they're using data from last year or etc looking at grain looking at crops looking at soil moisture and they're sometimes more basic but it's putting that information that's already there that's making a decision of when people have been measuring the soil temperature for so many years to say whether or not it's right to now drill or not and a combination of how much moisture there is and and all these sort of elements and some of it should we say it's not pulled together in some algorithm or in a farming sense it's a innate natural sort of thing that people are using and some would say that you know that's a good farmer that's not but he knows his own soil he knows his own environment and people that live out towards the coast are already making adjustments to a person that lives much further inland and they are adapted to that environment so we are already I suppose doing that but what you're talking about is well essentially it's going the next step forward hopefully learning from those things exactly that yes so that would mean that, you know, if you had a computer at Lessingham or you had a, whatever the smart farmer is, this electronic smart farmer who's going, OK, the temperature's this, the forecast is this. I mean, that's a joke in itself, but really good weather forecasting would be good, by the way. But so it's got, you know, weather forecast, got the temperature, got the date, historical, and the projected potential long-term forecast. Still got to make a decision whether it plants or not. But on the basis of data and probability, it's going to make that decision. Yes. But it must find it difficult to wait, is my point. Actually, machines are really good at waiting. One of their great skills is... Actually is, not going is, combining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they look at the data. So, you know, <clears throat> necessarily farmers would be somewhat risk-averse. But actually, what machines will do is say, that is correct, but here's the actual probability. This is how it stacks up. Yeah. And they should be more, you know... Well, it depends on how much data you've got. I mean, that's the other thing. What can you tap into? How do you... You know, you're going to go to a company and say, right, can you give me the details of your intake period or the details of when you harvest it? Because farmers aren't great at collecting data. Yeah, that's the other important thing about AI. And did any technology... So for those of you old enough to remember the first dot-com revolution, you know, the sort of 99, 2000, it was assumed that all of a sudden there'd be this massive swathe of, you know, technology and we'd all be just sort of sitting on sofas and every technology would be doing everything for us. And the truth of it is, every technology takes much longer to take impact mm. than we expect, but the eventual impact is perhaps much larger than we initially forecast. So if you look at an organisation like Amazon now, for example, and, the, and their impact upon retailing, you know, everyone thought that was going to happen in, you know, 2000, 2001, suddenly it was going to be done. But the reality is, it takes a long time for technology to actually get all the components in and work. But the eventual impact, which we're now seeing, which is, you know, the impact of Amazon and the impact of the online retailers, is actually maybe even greater than initially forecast. So that's the thing about what we see in about AI. It's not going to suddenly revolutionise any particular organisation or industry. It'll be over a period of time and probably longer than people expect that it'll take place. But the eventual impact may be greater than initially forecast. Yeah, but it's, you know, for the small minds that don't live in that world, it's very difficult to, you're trying to second guess what to do next. And at the moment, we're going to grind away just trading grain, I guess, for certainly the rest of my days. But when do we place all my traders with bots? 
Well, you know, it's not about replacing. I don't see it as a replacement. It's that you still need people to evaluate as well, work with what works, and there'll still be a human element. So, for example, in our company, we still, you know, engage with the human element, except that when the humans are engaged, rather than having to be worried about how much time they spend with any particular consumer or customer, they can then, because they're all the drudgery is taken away effectively, they can spend any amount of time mm. to provide a great customer experience. So it changes the relationship between what the humans are doing. They tend to do high-value, value-add activity rather than, you know, constantly looking at screens and saying mm. what's changed, what's changed when they're trading, for example. What questions haven't we asked? Yes, probably a whole load of stuff we really haven't. Like, we just don't understand the subject matter enough. I mean, there's, you know, the world of AI is full of concerns and doubts, for sure. And indeed, I think one of the important things is about the legal ownership of any particular system. So take, for example, the situation with self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. So in the US, there are around about 30,000 deaths a year from road traffic accidents, which interestingly is about the same as there are from gun deaths in the US. So it's of the similar sort of Mm -hmm. nature, except that of the 30,000 gun deaths, about 20,000 are actually self-inflicted suicides and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. So in fact, car driving is much more dangerous in the US than guns. You wouldn't necessarily think of that. I'm sure the same is here in the UK. We haven't got the gun problem. But, you know, you've got the situation where if you think about young children, people going to drive, it's very dangerous to be going and driving a car compared to all the other ways. I mean, I think it's the biggest chance of death between the age of 18 and 30, whatever, is actually in road traffic accidents. So it's surprising because the American police are around every corner and you're only supposed to go 50 miles an hour and it's like they're very risk averse and I've only been done for speeding three times in America which is because it doesn't strikes me they're always there looking to stop you and so where do they what is it they drink driving it's or just something? a lot of there's, there's 300 million people and they're doing a lot of driving so mm. it all kind of you know makes sense but here's the thing so the technology already exists to eradicate the vast majority of those deaths so the self-driving car as a technology exists and can be done. And essentially, it's always going to be much safer and much better than having a human carbon-based form doing the driving because rather than having two eyes, you've got 10, you've got infinite amounts of data, you've got, you know, immediate electrical system-based reactions, and that's certainly going to be the human. But the real problem is a legal one, which is in the event of an accident, who's responsible? Is it the organisation that owns the data? Is it an organisation that has a system that manages the data? Or is it the human that has the car that decides to actually use that car in self-driving mode. And so the problem we really have with the use of AI often is a legal one, Mm. which is about who's responsible. Who would you say is responsible? I don't say it's the human. If they say, right, we've sold you this product, it works, and you're much less likely to crash. Okay, I trust you. Boom. Well, they've solved it in the case of planes. So if you think about planes, it's now very clear. And what you have to have is black box recorders that make it very clear. And that's why the black box recorder is always so vital. They always go hunting for it. Mm. It isn't just to find out what's wrong. It's to work out who's paying for it. That's the real reason. It's not because they want to find out what's wrong. Is it Boeing? Is it this software provider? Is it the pilot? What actually occurred here? So assuming that you can put black boxes in cars and actually manage that, then I imagine that's a legal problem that can and will be solved. I mean, I don't imagine our children will be growing up driving for very long. That's no, that, you know, it's an obvious area of danger that should be eradicated because there's you know, people dying on the roads all the time mm. because of the inevitable inefficiencies of human activity. Mm. But when you start to think about this in you know, an agricultural sense, the same thing will become true, is if you deploy a system that you say, OK, I'm going to let you decide this system when to harvest this field based on your algorithms. Now, if you put your combine into a field with a computer running it, nobody driving it, and it had analysis of the product coming through the machine, the actual end product, 
effort going into the grain bin. So if one brain is working out, you know, is the moisture still correct? Is there too many awns in it or chaff or whatever? You know, what's the easiest way to cut this field, the most efficient, fuel-efficient way? All of those things could be done by, that's being done now, just happens to be someone sitting in there as well at the same time. But, you know, you can see where that would easily be just, right, OK, switch him on, off he goes. These are the criteria you've got to meet moisture-wise and sample-wise, and here's your field, boom. I can see a major benefit in that. Especially, I mean, you know, there's a, I guess there's already GPS use on that. Yeah, yeah if they're not being nicked every Saturday night by <laughs> the local people, yeah. Um, that's yeah, the biggest but, problem on farms. I mean, stuff, GPS systems are targeted and nicked all the time. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. It's not me. <laughs> no, sure it isn't it so uh, the problem with all these systems is you have to have someone who is responsible who can you know basically cover the insurance and say yeah this is mine i made this software i'm responsible for that mm. so that's the key area i think of ai that hasn't yet been resolved and fortunately it will keep lawyers happy for decades good they've got to earn their money somewhere haven't they poor little chaps he said with experience so <laughs> yeah so have you answered the dumb questions we haven't asked yet uh, you haven't asked any dumb questions i think i most try to encourage people is to uh, you know ai if you think about we've got some short-term challenges to resolve in the planet which are things like climate change mm-hmm. i call them short term because i'm thinking longer term than that but if you think long term you need to think about you know how do we actually ensure the future of the human species and those sorts of things and technology and ai is obviously part of that you can't uninvent it either you can't uninvent technology. So I think that one of the problems we're faced with is, to some extent, it was born out of people reading, I don't know, a 1984-type scenario, in that we've been so heavily influenced by films, by our experience, what we believe based on some filmmaker or some writer's interpretation of what that world might look like. And our fears sometimes are completely based on someone else's sort of nightmare. And the problem is that we're actually not sometimes addressing all of the good things and actually looking at it from a really positive thing. We're just literally thinking, well, that might happen. But hang on, our decisions are based on really what we saw in a film or read about or someone leaning over a gatepost and telling all about how so-and-so, so-and-so had this or that. Or it might be, I mean, I can think of one classic example that's happened in the last so many years where the aeroplane that simply autopilot was put on or something along those lines and it wouldn't allow the plane to actually adjust and go up and it kept pointing the front of the plane down i think it was the accident in africa wasn't it and how the override system the technology should we say had led to all these people's death but it wasn't really That's such a scaremongery type thing because there have been millions or billions of people that have been saved because of technology. And that's where I sort of struggle with where are we going next? We're of such an early stage. And and is it actually also an early stage of worries about what's going forward? But also the definition of AI is based on a lot of people's experience of watching a film or something. And we watch iRobot or we watch some other sort of post-apocalyptic sort of film or something that was Terminator classic you know Cyberdyne systems etc the world had been taken over by a load of robots and they'd learned how to do xyz yeah that's a very fair point is that the sensationalist of the media and the film that's what it's designed it's designed to play on our fears but the reality you know let's take for example the management of diabetes at the moment you know have this little patch you wear mm-hmm. on your arm yep. you hold your phone up to it it tells you what to inject you inject it's, you know, that's an example of technology just for a very simple case that makes life so much easier. And most of our experiences of technology, a light switch, running water, a flushing toilet, these are all examples of technology. Sure, they're not AI, but they're all examples of technology. So I was talking to someone recently they said, you know, I wish the internet wasn't here. And I thought, well, I could just let that go. 
but I didn't. And what I said was, let's think about the impact of the internet on education globally. You know, let's think about the impact of that on, you know, emancipation of huge amounts of the workforce that now, you know, are able to earn money globally and do things. That's all been enabled by internet. You're absolutely right. It's the, the benefits for the globe, for people in developing countries and education for people who haven't got an education system. The dynamic that we worry about in this country is, you know, I've got a daughter who turned 13 at the weekend and glued to her hand is her phone. I'll wrench it from her dead cold fingers, possibly. But it's like, there it is. She's got to do a daily, I don't know what it's called, something or other where you just zap something off to let everybody know what you're doing on a daily basis. You know, why? Why would you do that? And it's that, the social involvement of this is there's lots of positives, thousands of positives, but there's also negatives. People don't know how to leave it alone, how not to spend their entire time in that sphere. That's the dynamic. That, that is, we're I mean, with. I don't deny anyway that's a problem. I mean, I've also got children and phones and technology in general. And annoyingly, they're designed that way. They're designed to give the instant dopamine hit. Mm. That means you just want it and want it and want it and you're glued to it. And there's a tremendous film called The Social Media that I recommend to your listeners mm-hmm. that relates to this. But what you've got to think is that's what we're experiencing now. You know, these mobile devices and the companies that make them and the companies that wish to addict their users to them they've only been around you know 20 30 years it's actually very new in terms of you know human engagement we have to find better ways of controlling that and mitigating that but you know before it was phones it was cigarettes you know everyone was just Mm -hmm. smoking all the time those companies were designed to make money by selling cigarettes and they've now been controlled and managed and that's no longer such a problem so in the same ways these companies have to be controlled and managed so that they don't necessarily do the things that means that their technology becomes so addictive Mm. so it needs the same sort of controls on them and we also as humans you know partly through darwinism we need to learn you know what makes a successful life and it's probably not spending all your time glued to a phone just using absolutely, you you're absolutely right. That is a Darwinian thing, isn't it? You know, don't saw off the branch you're sitting on on a tree is a good Darwinian moment. And yeah, if you spend your life on the phone, there's a whole host of things that the development of your interactions with people that's another problem interactions with people. We're all conversing with computers that have evolved to be able to have a conversation based on the conversations that have been had in the past. However, the younger generation, in my opinion, are losing the ability to communicate as effectively. They don't want to talk on the phone. They want to WhatsApp. They want to quick zap, boom. Yeah, I'm always a little nervous, you know, now technically an old person, 50, 52, or whatever I am. Shit. <laughs> Saying these young people nowadays don't know they're living, life's waste of the young age, etc. But so I can't judge them too hastily. But I am a little worried, yeah, if people spend all their time in front of devices that I think does inhibit their natural engagement. The next thing has got to be, all right, where is it going? Because essentially you're saying we're very much at the early stages, realistically, of, should we say, AI. You're talking about the next generation, the, what's going on, how it's going to evolve. Within that industry, where are people really pushing the boundaries? Where it, At the moment, it's, it's how I see it. It's, at the moment, we're building more and more data. And at some stage... The infinite sort of amounts of data will just the changes it reinforce what we're doing and continue reinforcing it and reduces the chances of the error should we say because when we spoke I caught up with you obviously we were chatting at the weekend and we were sort of saying most of it's sort of a positive reinforced reaction to something you know either positive or negative reaction over time because we're creatures of habit and certain things aren't changing our environment does change but it's within limits we're going to get to a point where we don't go any further where is the next thing do you see 
So there's two things there. The first is about the nature of data reinforcing. And there is a problem in data. If you have a bias, that can easily get reinforced. Mm. So you ended up with a bias being built in. And so that you end up veering off in peculiar directions. You know, let's think about job adverts. You might have a job advert and the typical applicant for the job, let's say, is of a particular gender or a particular race. Then it's easy for the job advert to, if you ask AI to write it, for that job advert to embed that bias in the advert. And so it becomes self-fulfilling. So that needs thought and control and management and that's the sort of area where you know human engagement in that also becomes quite important to say actually this isn't quite right we need to actually build the opposite bias in Mm. as part of the instructions part of the prompts if you will will there be enough people doing that job if one company owns a whole bucket load of ai firms let's just say you know whoever the wealthiest man in the world is says he buys them all up so he becomes the judge it's like twitter you know he's the judge of what goes out and what doesn't is that a good thing will his own bias I'll keep that because that's my bias. I think this is where governments become particularly important, is that, you know, governments and their ability to, for and on behalf of their people, democratic elected governments, can control how organisations behave. And, you know, the sort of making sure you have enough competition between particular organisations, not allowing them all to, you know, merge into a single super corporation, Mm. that's really important activity. So if you see, for example, the European Union has recently taken a bunch of large American software companies to task, and it said, you know, you, you can't behave in these anti trust ways is that inappropriate so, yeah, I think that's where governments become central to actually control how corporations interact with their citizens. But it's, they'll have as much clue about it as we've got. You know, you guys are the experts and they're going to be... Uh, I think, you know, given that, you know, ideally people will have more time, there will be experts around that can be employed by governments to actually like help monitor, <laughs> yeah, monitor and manage these things. Good. A new career for your 52 years of really old codginess. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> anyway, I think we've got as deep as we dare go in it. You know, I think that we're looking forward to the programme you're writing for us on our trading just to stuff all these other algorithms and stuff. So thanks for the work you're doing on that. Sure. <laughs> but no, Giles, thank you so much for coming down to Aylsham and, you know, travelling across the county that you love. I do. And coming to see us. It's really good of you. Thank you so much for your Andrew time. Andrew Joseph, it's been a huge pleasure. Cheers. Cheers, bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio, a full-service creative agency specialising in websites, digital marketing and branding. Get in touch to inquire with their friendly team on info at eastcoastdesignstudio.co.uk.